Well, good morning. It's so good to be here with you all today. Again, my name is Andrew, and I serve as the Family Ministries Pastor here at Crossroads. And I want to say welcome to those of you joining us at West Campus. Welcome to those of you joining us online. As we get going today, I want to reiterate what uh, your host just said, which is, mothers, we love you so much. Uh, I know that one of the major reasons that I am where I am today is because of the influence and impact of my mother on my life. Uh, growing up, my mom said that she knew I was destined for one of two things, either to go into the ministry or end up in prison. So <laughs> she spent a lot of time growing up praying that it would be ministry and so far so good. All right. I guess I've still got time, but my mom is a huge reason. It's a lot because of her prayers that I'm here today. So moms, we love you and we are so grateful for you and so glad that you are here with us today. Now, before we jump in and continue our series, I want to share some exciting news with you in case you haven't heard yet. Uh, last weekend, we asked you to affirm the call of Phil Heller to be our next lead pastor here at Crossroads. Phil was here just a couple weeks ago to share with us in this Jesus People series. And I'm excited to share with you that last weekend, there was over 99% affirmation to call Phil as our next lead pastor. Now, I am personally so excited to get to know Phil a little bit better and to begin working with him, but he's got some things he's got to finish up in Noblesville, so we're excited for that transition to take place. He won't be here full-time until uh, about July because he's got a couple kids graduating between now and then, and he's finishing up things at his church, so we're excited to have him, but no, we've still got a couple months ahead of us, um, but we are so excited to have Phil coming to join us here on staff. And I'm excited to see what God continues to do as we move forward into the future. Now, before we get going today, what I want to do is just take a minute to thank God for his faithfulness in bringing Phil and also pray over our time together today. So will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness over these last several months. God, I thank you so much for bringing Phil here and for the way that you've confirmed in so many ways that he is the leader that you have chosen for us as we move into the future. God, today, as we open your word to Ephesians 2, God, I pray that you will give us open hearts and open minds. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you desire us to see in this passage. And God, as we jump into your word, I pray that you will give us a heart to obey whatever it is that you challenge us with today. God, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here with us last week, you got to hear from one of our ministry partners, Brandon Watts, who's a church planner at Epiphany Church in Brooklyn. And Brandon's one of my favorite preachers, so I was so glad that he got to be here with us last weekend. And he shared with us from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And in case you weren't here, I'll bring it up to speed in about 60 seconds, give you a run through of what Brandon shared with us last week. He started out by showing how the first three verses in Ephesians chapter 1 show us the unfortunate reality or the unfortunate life without Christ. He talked about how that shows that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. We, we are by nature sinners. And in that case, we are completely hopeless left on our own. 
being dead, we didn't just need some medicine, but we actually need to be made alive again. And he shows us how verse four there was the pivotal point where it shows God's great intervention, where it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us made us alive in Christ. And God intervened to raise us up and give us brand new life. But Brandon showed that the gospel doesn't stop there. But he showed by focusing in on verse 10 that the right response to the gospel is always good works. Because it tells us that that God has created us new in Christ. He's made us as God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And what I love about what Paul does here is that Paul just continues right on. And we're going to pick up things in verse 11 from there on out, where I think Paul shows us that the gospel is a lot bigger and better than we sometimes give it credit for. The gospel doesn't just affect and change our relationship and our status with God, but the gospel changes every other relationship that we have. The gospel has the power to change everything. But as Paul talks about this, as we jump into Ephesians 2, verse 11, what we see first is that Paul calls us to remember something. Here's what I think Paul calls us to remember in verses 11 through 12, to remember reality apart from Christ. Here's what he tells us about our reality apart from Christ in verses 11 and 12. He says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Paul begins by saying, so then remember. He begins by reminding them of the problems that they had, these Gentiles like me and and probably most of you, these Gentiles being apart from the Jews. He shows us that, that there was a problem that they had with one another. They didn't get along and the feeling was mutual. They just didn't like one another. And there were things that kept them separated. There were things that ultimately kept these Gentiles separated from being a part of the people of God. You know, I think sometimes we we are all too familiar with these ideas of having boundaries between us and other people and boundaries between what we think make up the people of God and who can and cannot be included. Maybe for some of us, sometimes that understanding of a boundary marker that keeps us from interacting with others can be a political party. Maybe for some of us, it's not necessarily a political park, uh, political party that gets in the way, but it's someone's ethnicity. Or maybe it's not someone's ethnicity, it's their denomination in the Christian faith, or it's their worship preference, or we could go on and on with these different things that sometimes we make boundary markers between us and other people. You know how it is when you're driving down the road and you have someone cut you off and it doesn't make sense until you see a bumper sticker and you realize, look who they voted for last election. Of course they would cut me off. (laughs) Everyone who voted for that person probably cuts people off every single day because that's what those kind of people are like. (laughs) We create these boundary markers between us and others. Or maybe it's whenever you're leaving your neighborhood and you see someone walking in your neighborhood of a different ethnicity and you think, oh no, did did I lock my house? 
And you have this underlying assumption that you might make about people who are different than you. And you have these different boundary markers thinking they're different than I am. So they don't necessarily have a place here with me. We make these different assumptions, sometimes whether we realize it or not. And Paul is writing to these people saying, hey, remember what it was like before you were brought into the people of God. He begins by listing off a few things that were a reality for these Gentiles. First, they were without Christ, which means that they were without the hope of one coming to save them. They were excluded from citizenship with the people of Israel, which means that they were excluded from the people of God. They were foreigners to the covenants of promise. And ultimately, they were without hope and without God. The sad reality is that apart from Christ, we are excluded from God's people. Apart from Christ, we can't sing these songs about the God of the promise because those promises aren't for us. Apart from Christ, we are ultimately without hope and without God. Apart from Christ, we are still dead in our sin, but we're not just dead, but we're also lonely as we are left off on our own apart from God's people. You know, as I think about this corporate kind of relationship that Paul points us to here, I I think about how sometimes we talk about having a personal relationship with God or a personal relationship with Jesus, which I think is great. But unfortunately, I think sometimes whenever we say a personal relationship, what we mean by personal is private. Or what we mean by personal is something that's individual. It's only between us and God. It doesn't affect anything else. But this whole picture of a private faith that doesn't affect our other relationships is foreign to what we see pictured in the New Testament. It's not something that that Paul shows us here. That's something that we've made up on our own. It's foreign to what we have here. A personal relationship is great, but not private. The fact is is that whether we like it or not, our sin always affects more than just us. While we may try to fool ourselves sometimes in saying that my sin only affects me and God, it doesn't affect any other relationship. The reality is that our sin changes the way we look at those around us. Our sin changes the way we treat our spouse and our kids. Our sin ultimately interferes with our relationships with others. And it's been this way since the beginning. God created man and woman. He put them into the garden, gave them everything they needed to flourish. But then what man chose to do was rebel against God, which is the heart of sin. And whenever mankind rebelled against God, it didn't just change their status with God, but it started to make problems between them and other people as well. And it's been that case ever since sin entered the world. Sin affects all of our relationships and it causes disharmony and disunity. And this is our reality apart from Christ. But thankfully, Paul doesn't stop there. Just like we saw last week in chapter two, verse four, that God intervened to make us alive. So Paul here shows us that God intervened once again and how that intervention changed everything. And as we begin to look at verse 13, I think Paul wants us to recognize something else. He wants us to recognize the new reality in Christ. He talks about this in verse 13 by writing this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
God's great intervention produced this new reality for us. It's a new way of interacting, not just with God, but with the people of God. Here we see that our relationship with God, once again, doesn't just affect our vertical relationship with God, but it affects us horizontally with our relationship with other people. And those who are far away, he said, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, as I thought about this this week with this being Mother's Day, I think an incredible illustration and picture of this is some of the moms in the room who saw a child who was without hope and made that child the object of your affection and brought that child who was far away near (laughs) I think about a child who was on their own, a child who was without hope of one to come and save and care for them. A child who was a foreigner to the idea of of having a privileged relationship with a family. I think about a child who was ultimately a, a foreigner to the idea of having an unbreakable promise or an unbreakable relationship with a parent because all they'd ever experienced before was one broken relationship, one broken promise after another. But this child who was without hope was brought near by the financial sacrifice of a mom in this room and the convenience sacrifice and the time sacrifice and so many other sacrifices that were made to make this child who was far off brought near and brought into a family. We can see this idea a lot of times in legal adoption, but we also see it with some women who just see a child who seems to be left alone and chooses to love them the way that God has loved us. And whenever they do that, they take this child who may have been without hope, who may have been left on their own, and they bring them near by their sacrifice. I love what Paul writes here. He says that this is the same kind of love that we have in Jesus. Now, this certainly isn't the only application of this, but I do want to take a minute just to draw this connection to what you heard your host say earlier. This month is Foster Care Awareness Month, and we have a foster care crisis in our state and in our region. So what we hope you will do even this week is pray about what role you might be able to play in showing this type of love to foster kids in our area. For you, it may not be becoming a foster parent. Maybe it's supporting those families around you who do take this step, but begin praying now about what your role could be in showing this type of love to kids who were without hope, but have now been brought near. We want to be a people who show this type of love as God has showed this love to us. Paul shows how this idea worked itself out in verses 14 through 18. How was it that this new reality was brought into place? He says, for he, talking about Jesus, is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
He shows us that these boundary markers that were put up around God's people have been torn down by Jesus. Whenever he talks about these boundary markers, he's specifically talking about the boundaries between these Jews and Gentiles, which was ultimately the law. It was the law that that undergirded the the old covenant that we call, which is kind of given to us in the first five books of the Old Testament, which gave several different ways that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, were to ultimately separate themselves from other nations. But God didn't just give them this law to separate them so that they could go off on their own, but God wanted them to be set apart so that they could be a light to the rest of the world. God gave the people of Israel a role to be a light to the Gentiles, to be the light to the watching world. And so God sent his people out on this mission, but they failed again and again, and they couldn't keep this old covenant. So what God promises to do is actually to begin a new covenant where he would write his law on the hearts of his people where they would be able to keep this and actually be that light. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, whenever he came to earth, tore down that dividing wall and now invites any who will come into his family. He tells us that Jesus himself has become our peace. He has become not just the one who brings peace, but our actual means of peace, the ultimate embodiment of peace. And because Jesus has brought this peace, it means that you and I can tear down whatever walls we have with those around us who are in Christ. We no longer have to live in a world where we're constantly in a state of disunity and disharmony with those around us. Jesus has come not just to change our status with God, but our status with people around us. So what are some of the walls in your life? Is it someone who uses a different essential oil brand than you? I've heard great things about Young Living, but I don't think I'm going to cross over, okay? Still trying to figure that one out. Is it someone, once again, with a different political party, a different sports teams, someone of a different ethnicity? There are any number of things that we can create as barriers between us and other people. But here we see that in Jesus, these things have been torn down. But in order for us to actually experience these things being torn down in our life, we have to actually identify what they are. So I'd encourage you, think about what those things are that are dividing you and other people. You know, sometimes I think whenever we think about this peace that Jesus brings, we think about peace as being the absence of conflict. You know, as long as there are no major confrontations, as long as there are no major blowups, we think that that's what makes up peace. Or maybe we don't think of it as the absence of conflict. We, we just think about peace as being this inner feeling of peace or this feeling of inner tranquility. But the thing that, that we see, I think, in this passage is that, that that's just a cheap imitation of the kind of peace that Jesus brings. You see, the peace that Jesus brings is a sense of wholeness in our relationship with others. It's a, it's a sense of having flourishing relationships with those around us. The peace that Jesus brings isn't like hitting the block button whenever someone annoys you online so you don't have to see what they post anymore, although that may be a good first step towards experiencing peace. The peace that Jesus brings isn't just choosing to walk a different route in your neighborhood so that you don't have to interact with that person you disagree with all the time who lives on your street. 
The peace that Jesus brings doesn't just mean that that you do whatever it is to not confront those who you have disagreements with, but rather the peace that Jesus brings is restorative. The peace that Jesus brings actually goes to the heart of the issue and removes the root and restores relationships back to the way they were supposed to be. I think we think about this a lot with our relationship with God and we are so thankful for the way Jesus has come to bring about restoration in that relationship. But sometimes I think we miss the fact that Jesus came to do that with our relationship with other believers as well. That is what this passage is telling us. Jesus has come to bring real peace, not a false sense of peace, a peace that is fully restorative. As I thought about this idea of restoration this week, I thought about, you know, trying to do a kitchen renovation. You know, maybe you're watching TV one day and you see Chip and Joanna Gaines restoring a kitchen and you think, if they can do it, we can do it, right? So you get into your kitchen, you see the cabinets and you're like, mission number one demolition. I can do this. So you start ripping cabinets off the wall. And as you get those cabinets off the wall, what you discover is there is mold all over the wall behind the cabinets. As you tear those off the wall, you find mold on the back of these cabinets. And so you decide, okay, we've got to do something about it. If you just decided to throw some paint over the mold, you throw some paint over the the mold even on the cabinets, you put the cabinets back up, you could then walk into your kitchen and look around and say, look at this restored kitchen, right? It looks wonderful. And while that may be the case, you haven't taken care of the heart of the issue, have you? You still haven't gotten rid of the core issue, which is that mold. No, if you are going to experience full restoration in that kitchen, it means you're going to have to treat that mold. You're going to have to go to the root of the issue, and you're going to have to get rid of that thing, which means you're probably going to have to tear some drywall out. You're probably even maybe going to have to get rid of cabinets altogether and just bring in brand new cabinets to put up on the wall. But whatever it is, it's going to take a lot more than just throwing paint on the problems. And I think that that's what we see Jesus offering for our relationship, not just with God, but with other people, is the opportunity to experience full restoration, not just throwing paint on it so we can smile at one another when we see each other in public, but actually being able to get to the heart of the issue So we can experience relationships as God created us to experience. This is the type of peace that Jesus desires to bring in our relationships. But why is it that Jesus tore down this dividing wall of hostility? Why is it that he did this? Well, he tells us in verses 15 and 16, he says, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He did it so that he could create a brand new humanity, those who are in Christ, our union with Christ. The fact that we are identified with Christ unites us with all others who are also identified with Christ. All others who are also in Christ. It's us being brought together, which means that our primary source of identity is no longer our religious history or our family history or our sports preference or our political party. No, our new primary source of identity is who we are in Christ. And that's something that we share with those around us. 
You know, the implication of this new humanity, the implication of this new reality that that we're being called to recognize here is that whenever we settle for or participate in disunity, we are actively working against the finished work of Christ on the cross. Whenever we settle for or whenever we just rest in the fact of, well, you know, there's just going to be disunity here. This relationship can't be healed with other believers We're working against what Christ came to accomplish on the cross. Christ came to accomplish unity, not just with God, but with all of God's people. And that's something that's incredible to see. But I think that this right now has some pretty big application for us as a church body. Like we said earlier, this last weekend, we affirmed the calling of Phil Heller at over 99% affirmation, which is awesome. But church, if we think that our pursuit of unity stops with a couple of check marks on a ballot, we're missing something. God is calling us to a deeper unity. He's calling us to the pursuit of unity that will interrupt our lives, a pursuit of unity that will interrupt our preferences, a pursuit of unity that says we are going to put our union with Christ and we are going to put this mission that God has put before us ahead of what we want to do. And we are going to pursue unity because of what God has done for us. We are going to pursue this even when we disagree about some things. You know, the fact is, is that if you look throughout the New Testament, you see that good Christian brothers and sisters disagreed with one another. But what they kept coming back to was our union in Christ has to be bigger than this. I think that that's the same call for us as a church. There are going to be days ahead whenever you and I disagree with things. There may be even a day whenever Phil and I are working together and he and I disagree with things. But if we allow that disagreement or any idea of disagreement to turn into disunity, I think we're working against what Christ came to accomplish here. What he's calling us to is a pursuit of unity that transcends our own preferences. And this is a powerful, powerful picture here. He's calling us to actually do some things that might be really, really hard. I think that one application of this passage is us actually seeking out someone who may be wronged us to say, hey, we need to get this figured out. I'm not okay with there being this disunity from here on out. It may be seeking out someone we've sinned against and saying, hey, I'm not okay with this. We need to get this figured out and I'm willing to put in the work to heal these relationships. I'm willing to do this not for my sake, but for the sake of God's kingdom, for the sake of the witness of what God has desires to do in our lives. It means that we're going to have to choose to love rather than just be apathetic towards one another. I think the truth of what Paul is writing here once again is that if we choose or settle for disunity, we are working against what Christ did on the cross for the church. And we're telling the watching world something that we believe about the heart of God and the way that he has reconciled us to him and to other people. Now, as we talk about this idea of unity, what we're not talking about is uniformity. You've probably heard that before, but I want to reiterate that point. 
The fact is, is that God has created each and every person here in the room at Newburgh, at West Campus and online. He's, and online. He's created each of us differently. And as we come together in the midst of our differences and choose to unite around what we have in common, we give a picture to the world of God's design for the church. This whole idea of having unity in the midst of disagreement and this whole idea of having unity, not uniformity, is powerful. I love what Eric Geiger said about this in an article he wrote this week. He said, a church is most beautiful when the diversity points to the unity. When people who are different from one another rejoice that they are united by the common reality of Jesus. If, people, if all the people in a church are the same, Jesus is not put on display as the common foundation. If all people in a church are the same, the people get a, limited, uh, a very limited view of God's kingdom and miss out on the joy of community with believers who can help them grow. And Eric Geiger closed that article out by saying this. He said, a watching world is not in awe of uniformity, but unity in the midst of diversity makes people wonder what is it that unifies. For a church, it is the good news of Jesus. I love that word. And as I was just reflecting on that idea yesterday, I was reminded of what Paul goes on to write in Ephesians chapter three, verse 10, where he says this. He says, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom, this whole idea of bringing together Jews and Gentiles, people that were different from one another in one body. He says, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heaven. This is a picture to our watching world who whenever they look at the church, what they expect is to see if there are people who aren't like one another, they're going to become divided because that's what they see in the rest of society. But whenever people look at the church and they see unity in the midst of diversity, what they see is a picture of God's multifaceted wisdom, God's design for the church, for the world. And I believe it's one of the most powerful witnesses we can have to a watching world of the power of the gospel. Now, as Paul finishes out this passage, I think he calls us to see one more thing that the right response to the new reality we've just seen is to always pursue unity. Here's how he talks about what the finished work of Christ accomplished in verses 19 through 22. He says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. I love that incredible picture of what God is doing. He's building together each individual believer into a display of his dwelling place, into his temple. He's putting us together to show the world that he took those who were foreigners, who were far off, and he brought them near by the power of the gospel. He went from having people who primarily identified one another based upon their differences and allowed them to see that if they have Jesus in common, 
if they have the gospel in common, that that transcends any other difference that they have. He showed them that the citizenship for the people of God is no longer national, but it has to do with the fact that they share a common story, that Jesus came in and rescued them from death and made them alive. And because they share that same story about what Jesus has done, that no matter what their other background is, they have a point that they can come together and show the world their unity. You know, growing up, I was one of six kids. I'm still one of six kids, and I'm number five, and my little sister is number six. And growing up, we did not get along at all. I mean, just to give a couple of illustrations, just how bad it was, I used to make my little sister mad all the time, and I was fully justified in whatever I did, I assure you. But there was a time that we were sledding and my little sister decided to get back on me as I was standing on this ramp that had ice on it. So she pushed me off the ramp into a rose bush and I had to get four stitches on my eyelid. Another day I made my little sister mad. So she waited until I was rollerblading later on that day, pushed me down when I was on rollerblades and I chipped my tooth, okay? And this is how it went my entire childhood uh, until I was 18 and I started my senior year of high school. We didn't ever get along and we constantly fought. But then I walked into the high school my senior year and my little sister was a freshman in high school. And as we walked in one day, one of my fellow seniors said, your sister's pretty cute. I think I want to take her to homecoming. Are you kidding me? You're not taking my little sister to homecoming, right? At that moment, something changed in our relationship. You see, our whole life, my little sister and I had fought because we had so many things that were different between us. We wanted to do our own thing. We wanted things our own way. But in that moment, I soon realized that my little sister and I had a lot more in common than we had different. It turns out that all of my mom's efforts to bring us together and and reconcile us, that my mom was right, believe it or not. (laughs) And from that moment on, something changed in our relationship. I always laugh thinking back to it because I remember being angry with my little sister on the way to school that morning because she was alive and sitting next to me. And on the way home, I was like, hey, you want to go to McDonald's? I'll buy. What do you want to do? You know, we're best friends now. Why? Because I realized that the unity we had as brother and sister was a whole lot bigger than any difference we had. And I had a role to actually seek out healing in my relationship with my little sister. I had a role to actually protect my little sister when other people came towards her who had ill intentions. I had a role to protect her. And as we think about what Jesus is talking about in this passage, what Paul is writing about, about what Jesus has accomplished, I think he's calling us as the church to see that we have a lot more in common if we have Jesus at the center than we do in differences. And he's calling us to come together around those things and allow that to be what determines our relationships with others. To allow Jesus being central to actually mark us as a people of unity. Church, don't miss this. 
The only reason you and I can pursue unity in whatever relationship we have is because Jesus himself came and ultimately gave up his preferences. He laid his own will aside to come and die on the cross so that you and I could be reconciled to God. But as we see in this passage today, it's also so we can be reconciled with all the people of God. It makes us Jesus people who are a people of unity. The gospel changes not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with those around us and how we view those around us. So as we wrap things up and we think about how we can pursue unity in light of what the gospel tells us in this passage, I want to challenge you to take a minute and actually reflect on this. If you have a pen and a piece of paper, you can even grab a card from the seat back in front of me, whatever you need to. But I want to ask you a couple of questions and give you a few seconds to actually think about this. The first thing I want you to ask yourself is what relationship in your life is there currently brokenness and a need for restoration? Maybe it's a person Maybe it's a family member. What I want you to do is think about that and either imprint that name on your brain or actually write that name down of the person that you need restoration with in a relationship. And the second thing I want you to consider, and the second thing I want to give you a minute to think about is this. What is one step you can take this week towards building a bridge and making restoration? For you, it may be making a commitment to pray for that person every single day. For you, it may be writing a note to that person saying, hey, there's something going on here and and we need to figure this out. For you, it may be making a phone call. It may be writing a letter, writing an email. But whatever that one step is, What I want you to do right now is either write that down or just make that commitment between you and God right now that you are going to do that before next Sunday. Make the commitment to take a step of action towards unity in light of what Jesus has done for us. Church family, what we see in this passage is that Jesus has ultimately made us a people of unity and unity is a thing to be pursued. And if we are going to be a people of unity, it's going to require us to be a people of action, a people who seek out reconciliation and are willing to do the hard work of bringing about restoration in our relationships. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this strong challenge that we have here in Ephesians 2, God, as we think about what the implications of the gospel are, not just for our relationship with you, but for our relationship with those around us. God, right now I pray that you will give us the boldness to take steps towards unity with our other Christian brothers and sisters, God, so that we can be a picture to the world of the power of your gospel to change things. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.